Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch, real bourbon, no apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Campari America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Hi, guys. Don't forget about the Generation Y meetup in Kansas City on September 17th. I will be there along with the host of the Already Gone podcast. Event information is on the Generation Y Facebook page along with the Already Gone Facebook page and, of course, the Insight Facebook page. I've already heard from some people that they're coming, and I'm really excited to meet you guys. So we'll see you then. Welcome to Insight. I'm your host, Charlie, and with me over all the tubes and wires that make the internet work is Allie. How are you today, Allie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. We are going to talk tonight about, or this morning to you, about a woman named Tanya Head, who did some great things in the wake of the September 11th attacks, until it all fell apart thanks to a little thing we like to call fact-checking. This story isn't the traditional mysteries we cover, this is more like our episode on Chris McCandless, you know, a story that kind of asks the broader question of why in the world did she do what she did. So before we launch into Tanya's 9-11 story, I have to ask you, Allie, what's your 9-11 story? So I think I would have, was in university at that stage, and look, I'm an insomniac, I don't sleep, and I was watching some news channel to help me fall asleep, and then it happened, and obviously I didn't get any sleep, I was glued to the TV just watching it all unfold. It was, it was scary, it was like... Even though we're so far away from you guys, it was terrifying. For me, I was lying in bed with my three-week-old baby, who was actually three weeks premature, so he was due on September 11th, but I had had him early. Oh, wow. I was laying in bed with him, and my toddler at the time, who's now 17, came into the room, and he let me know that he was awake in the way that he always did, which was turning on the radio next to my bed. But instead of music playing, there was news, and they were talking about a bomb or a fire or something at the World Trade Center. Now, I grew up not far from there, about an hour and a half northeast into Connecticut from New York City. When I was in middle school, the Trade Center was bombed. So my first thought when I was half asleep hearing the news was that they were talking about that and that it had to have been an anniversary or something. So apparently my internal calendar is terrible because it wasn't anywhere near the anniversary. So I woke up a little bit more and they mentioned a plane. So then my brain thinks a plane must have accidentally crashed into the World Trade Center like happened at the Empire State Building. Well, that's what you would think. Right. That's what you, you wouldn't think anything else really, would you? Right. And I heard the story of the plane that crashed into the Empire State Building. I mean, that happened before even my dad was born, but I grew up hearing about it. So it was unfathomable to me that it could have happened with today's flight technology. So I was also picturing a small plane, thinking some idiot did it. So I I kept waking up and kept hearing more and thinking, this is bigger than I thought. We didn't have cable TV, and we actually still don't. 
and we got probably four TV channels total. So when I realized what was going on, the kids and I went across the street to a neighbor's house so we could watch the cable news coverage. I watched about as much as I could stomach and I went home and I'd missed about 70 calls from my husband and my mother. So my husband worked across the street from a federal building in Oklahoma. And so the building had been evacuated. And so he and his coworkers went home. Definitely. And my mom had grown up in Brooklyn, New York, and we still have family out there. My mom's cousin, Joan, had been at work. She had to walk all the way home from Manhattan to Brooklyn, and it had to have taken her at least three hours to walk. And another cousin, Bud, was he usually worked in that area, but he hadn't gone to work that day. But none of us knew any of this for like at least 24 hours, and it, probably even longer, because all the phone lines were down, and... Anything that wasn't down was overloaded with everyone trying to call. So it was it was absolutely terrifying, both on the grand scale of not knowing what's going on, having our country attacked, but also on the small scale of not knowing what happened to my cousins. That's pretty much my 9-11 story. It was scary. That's every time I'd... It was like... I mean, it was a while every time I would hear a plane go overhead. I thought, oh, it, you know, you just can't... It takes a while before you can hear a plane and not, like look up to check oh exactly exactly and in this sort of day and age now you hear about something similar happening and you don't think about oh it must have been an accident you now think it must be terrorism which is a scary way to live and think but that's our reality now I feel like it definitely did change my perspective on what would happen if someone said a plane flew into a building I wouldn't think automatically it must have been some idiot in a little plane. I would think, oh, no, it's a terrorist attack. Yeah. And it's changed our lives worldwide with, I mean, I flew before 9-11 and, you know, security was very lax. You know, I never went through customs. They just sort of wave you through. But now you wouldn't get that now. Right. When you take your trip over here, you'll you'll be dealing with a lot of what is still post 9-11 travel in the United States. It's crazy. So let's just run down a quick timeline of that day because I realize not everyone is entirely familiar with it. What happened on September 11th, the four planes were hijacked that day by terrorists and they were used as weapons against civilians. So we're just going to go ahead and take it one plane at a time. The first plane to take off was American Airlines Flight 11. It left Boston right before 8 a.m. and it was a direct flight to Los Angeles. Boston and L.A. are on opposite coasts, so the plane would have had a lot of fuel in the tank. 20 minutes into the flight, the plane reported that it was hijacked. At 8.46 a.m., the plane hits the North Tower between the floors of 93 and 99, and that tower collapses at 10.28 a.m. The second was United Flight 175. It was also a Boston to Los Angeles direct flight took off at 8.14 a.m. and flew into the South Tower of the World Trade Center at 9.03 between floors 75 and 85, and at 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapsed. So the tower that was hit first collapsed second. Okay, so the third plane was American Airlines Flight 77. The flight left Washington, D.C. at 8.20 a.m., and again, it's a Boeing 747 like the other planes. And it too was heading for Los Angeles with 64 people on board. It is suspected that this plane too was hijacked when several of the passengers and crew on board 
are able to alert family members on the ground. At 9.37am, Flight 77 crashes into the western facade of the Pentagon, which is the headquarters for the Department of Defence in Washington, D.C. 59 people on board are killed, as well as 125 military and civilian personnel inside the building. For the first time in U.S. history, all flights over or bound for the United States are grounded, and we are talking some 3,300 commercial flights and 1,200 private planes are grounded in in Canada and United States over the next two and a half hours. The fourth and last hijacked plane was United Flight 93. It left New York, New Jersey at 8.41am. After being hijacked, some passengers used their cell phones to contact family members on the ground. When informed of the attacks on the World Trade Centre, the passengers decided to fight back. In the ensuing fight with the hijackers, the plane was forced to crash into a field in Pennsylvania, and that happened at 7 past 10am. The intended target of the plane is unknown. However, it's widely believed to have been the White House or the Capitol buildings, which is the central government in the United States. All 44 passengers and crew lost their lives, but they saved lives of who knows how many others. Nearly 3,000 people died that day between those on the planes and those in the buildings. 6,000 more were injured, but it's estimated that there were probably 15 to 20,000 additional people who were present, witnessed the events of that day, or were involved in the ongoing rescue efforts, many of whom bear psychological scars. The survivors of that day play a central role in today's story. It's actually a story more about the survivors than those who died. So let's move on to Tanya's story. Tanya's story, and I'm emphasizing story here, begins with her working in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. She was an employee of Merrill Lynch, working on the 96th floor. After a plane hit the North Tower, she decided to leave the South Tower as many people did. There was a lot of talk of the North Tower having been bombed, so she didn't want to take any chances that there was a bomb in the tower she was in. That makes sense. She grabbed her assistant, and she headed to the stairs to the sky deck on the 78th floor to wait for the elevators to the ground floor. While she was standing there, the second plane hit the tower. She was thrown against a marble wall. Her assistant, who was right next to her, was dead. Tanya was in terrible pain. One of her arms was hanging limp at her side. She was convinced she was going to die there. And she actually had just, her thought was, just please make it not hurt, make it go fast. However, a young man with a red bandana came over to her, helped her up, and guided her through the smoke towards the stairwell. She was following the man past the bodies of dead and dying co-workers, and a man who was near death took off his wedding ring and handed it to Tanya, begging her to bring it to his wife. I guess there was an inscription in it or something that helped her know where to bring it. The man with the red bandana that was reported to have helped other people out of the building was Wells Crowther, and he died when the building collapsed. And he's not part of our quote-unquote story. He actually lived and died saving other people. Back to Tanya's quote-unquote story. Heading down the stairs, Tanya could hardly make it. She came across a firefighter who helped her up and got her down the stairs. He eventually had to carry her out of the building. When he got her outside, he handed her to another firefighter and he headed back in. 
Within moments of making it outside, the building started to rumble, and the firefighter who had Tanya ran towards a parked fire truck and put her under it with his body covering her. And they were actually buried alive under the debris from the building. So this is Tanya's last memory before waking in the hospital days later. She has no idea how she got out of the rubble. She woke up on in the hospital on September 16th. Her arm had been partially detached and she had it surgically reattached. She also had burns on her arm and her back and her arm would never return to full use and the burns would leave scars. Her parents were there in the hospital when she woke up and she kept asking them questions about where her husband Dave was. It was days before they would even answer that question. Dave had been in the North Tower and her mother told her that he was missing. So let's go ahead and talk about Tanya and Dave and how they met. Okay, so this is another part to Tanya's story that makes it even more heart-wrenching. She had a fiancé or husband, that fact does get murky, and his name was Dave. She would never reveal Dave's surname to protect his parents' privacy, and their love story is one of fairy tales. It's extremely romantic. Tanya and Dave met when they both tried to get into the same cab sometime in late 1999 or early 2000, Dave offered to let Tanya have the cab if she promised to call him. She took the cab but threw away the business card he gave her and never called him. About a month later, they bumped into each other at a business meeting and she agreed to a coffee date and that coffee date turned into another date and another date and they eventually moved in together in a large apartment with a housekeeper and they got a dog, a golden retriever named Elvis and we'll talk a bit more about Elvis later. Dave proposed to Tanya in the spring of 2001, and they immediately began planning their October wedding. But as a lot of engaged couples do, I know that me and my husband did as well, they began arguing over the details of the wedding as they tried to keep themselves and both their mothers happy with the arrangements. In August of 2001, Tanya came home from a long day at work, and there were rose petals on the floor, Hawaiian food on the table, And Dave came out in a grass skirt and coconut bra. He had booked them a luxury trip to Hawaii to reconnect and reboot with all the stress of the wedding. While there, he surprised her with a white dress that he had custom made with her measurements and a beach wedding. Instead of cancelling the October wedding, they decided to hold off filing the marriage licence of the Hawaiian wedding and make the October wedding their legally binding wedding. This way, everyone was happy. They got to have the ceremony they wanted and their families got the wedding they wanted. So Tanya and Dave had this big fake wedding in Hawaii that really makes my wedding sound like crap, really. Dave had organised the whole thing for Tanya as a surprise. Anyway, Tanya and Dave planned to have their for real wedding in New York on October 12, 2001, a month after 9-11. So where was even all this? Well, on the day of 9-11, he was on the 100th floor of the North Tower and he was killed. Tanya would later attend at least three 9-11 anniversaries with a miniature yellow cab toy and flowers to commemorate Dave and how they met. And this is the worst, most tragic part of the story to me and the part that will eventually become her undoing. 
Having a missing loved one is incredibly difficult. I mean, we talk about missing people here, and some of the families of missing people have said they would rather know that their loved one was dead than remain in limbo about it. Well, Dave worked in the North Tower of the World Trade Center, and he was in the office on September 11th, and no one heard from him after the attacks. However, there he wasn't found right away. It, he was officially considered missing. It actually took six months for his partial remains to be found and identified so that she knew that he did, in fact, die in the tower collapse. Even though she already knew it in her heart, she had it confirmed. So like a lot of survivors from 9-11, she was, Tanya was dealing with nightmares and survivor's guilt. I mean, she had people right next to her dying. The per- people that helped her out of the building had died. Even 9-11 support groups were often more for the people who lost a loved one in the attack, and many survivors were told they should feel lucky or blessed. Now, Tanya kind of lived in both worlds. She had lost a loved one in the attack, but she was also dealing with her own trauma of being in the attacks and in the tower that day. It would be hard because, yeah, you you would feel guilty because you'd be saying, why me? Why am I so lucky? And so you're dealing with that, and then you're dealing with losing the person that means the most to you. It would... I don't know, drive you crazy inside. Right. I mean, I've listened to some interviews with people who survived and they think things like, well, could I have grabbed one more person? Could I, why did I run out? Why didn't I stay and help? Why, you know, there's just a lot on them and the things they saw were horrific. But many of the survivors are told that they should feel lucky or blessed that they had survived and at least they didn't die. And even among their family who were so thankful they were alive, they had a hard time feeling that same way. So they kind of were pushing down their own emotional pain and turmoil because they didn't want to give it a voice and make it sound like they weren't grateful they survived. Eventually, though, whenever there's a group of people with a similar experience who can't find their place, web forums and support groups start popping up. These survivors were looking for others who understood their unique situation, the gratitude and the guilt. So in May of 2003, Tanya joined one of these forums. It wasn't until November that she posted the details of her story, and these details blew everyone away. Her story was huge. While some people's stories were simply of going down the stairs and walking out the building, Tanya's involved a daring escape, the loss of a loved one, the loss of all her co-workers, and extremely serious injuries. While the forum was going, there was also an in-person support group forming, and it is still around, and it is called the World Trade Center Survivors Network, and they have done amazing things. Yes. But here in the beginning, Tanya's story had been posted, and someone mentioned it to the founder of the Survivors Network, a man named Jerry. He, like everyone else, was blown away by the story, and he contacted Tanya, and they began working together. She became very involved in the design and the maintenance of the website and the forum. And in a move that will actually make you shake your head, she emailed the leaders of the survivors group for the Oklahoma City bombing, asking them how they handle people on their forum who are quote unquote fakers. And I have to read (laughs) you the email verbatim. And here it is, quote, Until now, our Yahoo group has had the policy to accept anyone who applied because we trusted the people's good faith. I mean, who would want to fake being a World Trade Center survivor, right? Oh my goodness. God knows how much I've been through, 
And this guy is just here for the attention or whatever sick reason, unquote. She sent that to the survivors group in Oklahoma City bombing who was helping the 9-11 survivors organize. I can't even. That's crazy. I know. As she moved up in profile in the group, Tanya eventually coordinated the ousting of the founding director, Jerry, and became president of the World Trade Center's network herself. Yeah, so her story and profile grew. People obviously wanted to know more and wanted to hear her story. Wells Crothers' family contacted her after hearing about the man in the red bandana in her story, and they obviously wanted to meet her. They met her for a dinner in a upmarket private place because that was what Tanya wanted and then they invited her to the annual service that they held in his memory and they asked her to speak. She claimed to be too emotional so she stood by Wells's dad while her friend and fellow Survivor Network member Linda read her speech about how Wells saved her life. Later she trained to be one of the first docents giving tours of Ground Zero and talking about the attacks It was no surprise to those involved when she was asked to give the first tour to Mayors Giuliani and Bloomberg, as well as Governor Pataki. It was a huge event, as you would imagine, and by all accounts, Tanya did a great job, but apparently suffered a full-on panic attack afterwards. She eventually approached a close friend of hers, a filmmaker, who made a documentary about the people who helped in the days after the attacks, and she wanted to make a documentary about the survivors. He first resisted, but he eventually gave in, so she sat down for interviews with him, and he recorded her story. Yeah, he first resisted because he felt like he had already given a lot to making a 9-11 film, and it's extremely draining. Oh, it would be. And so here she's asking him to kind of throw all that in again. But, I mean, she was persistent. She got a lot of things done because of her persistence. Tanya made many friends along the way, and she's inspired a lot of people Some of the members of the Survivor Network found her strength inspiring. She had the most dramatic and the most traumatic story of all of them, yet she moved forward with grace and love and openness. They told themselves that if Tanya could get through what she went through and be okay, well, then maybe they could be okay too. And she did a bunch of things to help the group. Um, Within months of joining, Tanya transformed the group. She helped the network get official status And then she secured state funding and she went on to get a specialist trauma expert to head counselling sessions for people who needed it. She successfully lobbied creators of the World Trade Centre Memorial and Museum Committee to make sure that they accurately reflected the journey of the survivors. Um, And she did a lot for the survivors to give them access to Ground Zero because Previously, they had to stand with everyone else and not get their private place to deal with what they went through. Um, what, what else? She hosted fundraisers for the group. She And often on her own dime, she would host the fundraisers. She put in a lot of money and a lot of her own money, a lot of her own time. She started Children's Fund in the name of her husband the or fiancé, the Dave's Children's Fund, and it was a non-profit organisation. And then in early 2005, she went to Sri Lanka to help with the tsunami relief efforts. And she sent the Survivors Network a 28-page single-spaced journaled account of her work there. So she did a lot, a lot, a lot. And one of the things with the private tours is other network members had tried to arrange them. 
and they weren't able to. I, who knows how Tanya was able to, but she was able to be persistent and persuasive and get them to. Also, one of the main issues that the Survivors Network wanted to approach in the beginning were the long-term health effects from the attacks. Yes. And Tanya prepared to testify in front of a congressional committee on it. She didn't testify, but her statement was read into the record. So I couldn't find any verification or even a denial about the tsunami trip. So, I mean, that could have happened, I guess. I don't know. I do know that those who looked into it could not find any record of the foundation she started, supposedly, in Dave's name. But even if we took those two things away and we just looked at what we can verify she did, she did do a lot. And she did a lot for this group. And she clearly had a passion for this group, where that came from, I guess we can talk about later. Tanya did have her dark moments. She suffered from panic attacks that required being talked down and often at 2 a.m., Other times, she would withdraw and snap at anyone who tried to help her. Her mood swings were legendary, and her behaviors would at times become emotionally abusive. And her friend Linda really took the brunt of this. Linda seems like the kind of person I would want to be friends with. She goes out of her way for her friends when they need someone. But that quality also made her a target for someone like Tanya. Tanya would push her to do things she didn't want to do. She would call her selfish if she wouldn't help Tanya with something. Linda had a sore spot that Tanya knew about and would exploit. So while Tanya had the most dramatic story, Linda maybe had the least dramatic. She wasn't in the towers that day. She was on the sidewalk. So she already felt a little bit uncomfortable as though she didn't really belong in the group because she wasn't in the towers in the danger zone. However, think about the things she would have seen, she would have smelled, she would have heard. And what her experience would be, even just being on the sidewalk watching those towers come down. Exactly. That's traumatic. And she really did need support to heal from that. Knowing Linda was insecure about her status as a survivor in the group, Tanya would throw it at her when she was angry. She'd compare her experience to Linda's as though Linda had no right to deny Tanya support even when that support was detrimental to Linda, like hopping in a cab at 3 a.m. when Tanya couldn't sleep, or helping her with a therapy exercise that was triggering to Linda. I read about this. This flooding where Tanya recorded her story and had to play it back over and over and over again, and she demanded that Linda be there, and Linda's therapist had to say, you need to stop, this is hurting you, you can't help her by hurting yourself. Something that sums up the friendship between Tanya and Linda is something one of their mutual friends said, and it was, the more devoted she was, the more Tanya demanded. There were also suspicions about Tanya's story among some of the members. While Tanya gave some very detailed accounts, she left out other details like Dave's last name. She did actually end up telling some of the close friends his last name, but she didn't show any pictures of him or have them around her apartment. She eventually had one picture of them together, and it was taken in a way that they were both unrecognizable. Like they, the She didn't even look like her in the picture. Also, it seemed odd to some members that at the anniversary services, she always stood with the survivors group, and no one ever saw her interact with Dave's family. As his wife or fiancé, you would kind of expect she would have stood with them 
at these anniversary services. And she never introduced either Linda or any other of her close friends to any of her friends or family or anyone else from her life prior to 9-11. Exactly. It's as though her life began the day she joined that forum. Exactly. Everything in her past, including things that were technically in her present, like she claimed to have a vacation home that she would take people to, she would promise to take them to and never did. And apparently all Dave's belongings were there. Yes, everything was there, so that's why she didn't have any of his stuff around. She had moved out of the apartment they had originally had and gotten a new one. And all of her co-workers happened to be dead. Everyone who saw her in the tower happened to be dead. And then she promised that she'd donate a burnt jacket to display in the tribute centre. And then she would go and make repeated excuses why she couldn't provide it. Yeah, she made a lot of promises that never went anywhere, including... um, promises she had with the Oklahoma City Survivors group. One person in the group was suspicious enough to start looking up some of the details online. He is one of the close friends who knew Dave's last name, so he was able to confirm that Dave did die in the September on September 11th in the tower. However, there's a lot of howevers in here. However, Dave was a really popular guy and he, there was no shortage of memorial sites and photo montages about his entire life from his various social circles, friends, and family. And Tanya appeared in exactly zero of them. She isn't in any picture. She isn't mentioned by name. There's not a single mention of a magical trip to Hawaii just a month before the attacks or any indication that he was supposed to get married a month after the attacks. Which is strange because you would imagine that that would be a big part of the, of his memorial story. That would be a, a horribly tragic part had he, you know, went and had this quick marriage that they never made legal, then he died, then a month later they were supposed to have this legal ceremony. You would think that would be an integral part of the story of his life. And then his fiancée slash wife has her own tragic, amazing story. And she's high profile in the survivor's realm. You would think this would have all connected. So even with these suspicions, he saw how Tanya treated people, such as the ousting of Jerry and the crappy treatment of Linda, and he honestly couldn't take the risk of exposing her if he was wrong. These people were his support group. They had helped him just putting one foot in front of the other day after day. And he'd actually rather sit on this information and his suspicions than lose his support group and his lifeline at that point. I think that's the problem. People didn't question her. There was obviously a lot of inconsistencies with her story. And can we talk a bit about Elvis the dog now? Yeah, let's talk about the dog. Her friends from the network would come to her apartment to visit her And when there was no, not only no dog, but no sign that a dog lived there, they would obviously ask where Elvis was. And she would always have some kind of excuse for it, that he was out being walked or stuff like that. And as I said, people just didn't question it. There's one woman who actually knew Dave and joined the group. And very quickly, Tanya ended up having her removed from the group, kind of running her out of the group. Jerry had his suspicions. He said that while her arm had clearly been injured and there was some disability there, her scars didn't look like burn scars to him. She was also inconsistent in calling Dave her husband or a fiancé, which struck many people as odd, even though she has this 
we sort of got married story, you would think she would have just picked one and went with it, what she addressed him as. And eventually it occurred to multiple people that everyone who could confirm any part of her story, Dave, her co-workers, Wells Crowther, the man with the wedding ring, everyone was dead. And I apologize if you're hearing stuff, there's a thunderstorm outside right now. So I'm hopefully soundproof enough that my microphone's not picking it up. Okay, so again, Tanya was the, he, she was the administration of the forum and the group. She had spread doubts about the veracity of other member stories, and those members had left the group. It's just like we said, how can people risk that? And certainly not over a few doubts about how much of her story is true or whatnot. Yep. So in 2007, a New York Times reporter named Dave, David Dunlap wanted to do a profile on a survivor for the anniversary. So who do you go to? You go to Tanya. She has the high profile and the big story. Of course. However, <laughs> there's another one. She became more and more agitated about this. She scheduled and canceled three different interviews, and she started telling people that the New York Times was actually harassing her. Again, a lot of people had these thoughts, why doesn't she just do the interview? Who cares? You know, it's just an interview. She's done a million interviews. They still stood up for her to David Dunlap. They told him to stop calling her, stop bugging her. So once again, taking these little doubts and these little moments and pushing them down, and even saying maybe after the anniversary she would do it, but the anniversary is very difficult. Give her some space. And he kept insisting that he was only trying to fact check some parts of the story because that's his job. He's a reporter. And it's the New York Times. He wanted to know what Dave's last name was. He wanted to know what was Tanya's job at Merrill Lynch. Just honestly, pretty basic questions. And I think her not willing her unwillingness to answer basic questions is what really got this going exactly that he wasn't asking what was it like to have your arm nearly blown off it was just it was really life before 9-11 he was asking her just details let's fill out the story a little bit and it would let him fact check things so tanya just continued to insist that the times was out to get her and kept saying that they were going to print lies about her she was telling everyone she didn't trust the media, and eventually a friend suggested that she meet with an attorney to go over her options. And this friend even went to the meeting, and Tanya's mother was there, and this is the first time anyone had seen or met anyone from Tanya's family. On the way there, or were they going up on the elevator, Tanya confided that she was worried because she wasn't actually a U.S. citizen. Yes. And the friend was completely relieved. Was that the big problem hanging over this whole thing? Because in the grand scheme of things, who cared? She was in the towers. She had the survivor story. You know, not being a U.S. citizen seemed like a small, small problem. And the friend waited in the waiting room while Tanya and her mother went into the appointment. And they were in there for a few hours. Yes. Eventually, the lawyer came back into the waiting room and invited the friend back and told Tanya in front of the friend that it doesn't matter if she didn't know Dave as long as she said she did. And it doesn't matter if she didn't actually work in the towers, but was just there for the day. Essentially, sure, she exaggerated her story, made it sound worse than it was, but it was fine. People do that. Sometimes they exaggerate. And there are multiple 
instances of high-profile people talking about being in the towers when they weren't. I mean, kind of imagine that friend be sitting there, though, and finding out the story was embellished because it was so... It was everything. It it made sense why there were inconsistencies and why she didn't want her story looked at. So it started making more sense, but it was still a blow to this friend. Tanya built her entire life and her status and everyone else where they fall in relation to her based on an exaggerated story. So that's where they left the lawyer's office. However, it started to come out more and more and more as the survivors talked and finally talked to each other about it, started looking things up, and they realized Tanya didn't exaggerate her story. The truth was she made up the entire thing out of thin air. Instead of being a piece about the survivors, the New York Times ran an expose, and instead of a documentary about 9-11 survivors, Tanya's friend made a documentary called The Woman Who Wasn't There, and there is a book by the same name that I highly recommend you read because these stories and so much more are in there. Tanya's response to this was, I have done nothing illegal. So who was Tanya Head actually? Tanya Head was born Alicia Estave Head on June 31st, 1973 in Barcelona, Spain. She grew up with almost an obsession with America. She kept the American flag above her bed. She grew up in a wealthy and prominent family and she had horseback riding lessons and she went to private schools, that sort of thing. Her father and brother went to prison for a financial scandal, which was highly embarrassing to the family. By all accounts, this scandal was pretty hard on Tanya and she was embarrassed to the damage to her family's reputation. Her childhood friends said that she would make up boyfriends and achievements and things like that. But everyone everyone would just humour her and not confront her directly on these lies. And so the lies grew over time. Some people who knew her in Spain weren't super shocked to learn that she was off to the US lying to people, although they were obviously shocked at the lengths that she was going to. Where was she on 9-11? Well, she was in school. She was getting her MBA at a school in Spain, and it's believed she had actually never been to the World Trade Center before the towers came down, and it's even possible she had never been to the United States before. The arm that was injured in 9-11, supposedly, was actually injured in a serious car accident. There was a Dave, there was a Wells Crowther, there were plenty of firefighters, but none of them had anything to do with her. There was, she was not in a hospital in New York City for weeks recovering. She was in Spain getting her MBA. She also had claimed to have gone to Harvard and Stanford. She, they have no record of her. And Merrill Lynch had no record of her as an employee. What I really think happened is she did some internet homework. She lurked on the survivors forum until she created this detailed, but sufficiently unverifiable story. I mean, there are definitely... It doesn't seem very impulsive because she was on there for several months kind of gathering intel. And she made sure that anyone, that everyone around her was dead. She made sure she only used names of people who had died, but could be verified as having existed. When this was investigated, Wells' family, Dave's family, they were all contacted. Uh, The survivors group for the widows, the widows of 9-11 were contacted. A lot of people who were very hurt by what she did were contacted. 
Of course, Will's family welcomed her in. They invited her to the mem- a memorial service, which was a, would have been a big deal for them. How heartbroken would have they been to think that they had some tie to their son and that was ripped away from them? Right, that she used the, their son as a vehicle to lie to people. And there exactly. were other survivors that Wells had helped that came to the memorial, and they also embraced her as kind of one of them. And she wasn't. She was not part of any of this. Exactly. Now, what happened next after this? Where's Tanya? Well, she didn't just drop out of everything. She started sending people some emails, not with an explanation or, heaven forbid, an apology, but more just casual emails. And my opinion is she was just trying to see if doors were still open, if people would actually talk to her and if there was a door to maybe keep the relationships going. She had made the Survivors Network her whole life and she lost that when her lies came crashing down. So she lost everything. There were some anonymous posts on the forum encouraging everyone to forgive Tanya. And a lot of people think Tanya wrote those herself. In February of 2008, an email to the Survivors Network informed them that Tanya had committed suicide. However, she didn't. She was spotted in December of 2010 and then in September of 2011 in New York City. In July of 2012, her employer in Spain found out about her New York deception and fired her. And that is the last I could find of her was in Spain in 2012 being fired. I do wonder, though, and I think about this when I listen to, you know, actual innocence podcast or when I read about people who are released from prison after search, after serving their time, I wonder when does their punishment actually end? I mean, should she never be able to get a job? Should she never be able to live a normal life again? Is it really fair that she got fired from that job? I think about that a lot. I don't know if you remember, there was an American dentist who went to Africa and shot a lion. Yes. It became so big, and I am absolutely do not support what he did, and I am not pro big game hunting in any sense, but he got death threats through the internet. He had to close down his practice for a period of time. At some point, are we just kind of taking revenge against somebody rather than justice and I agree I didn't when I found out that she had gotten fired because of what she did in New York years previously I I don't know I don't think that's entirely correct because the truth is she didn't do anything illegal you're allowed to tell stories she didn't take any money she never claimed any survivor's benefits if anything she spent more money I mean I guess we could talk about that She gave a lot of money. She gave a lot of her time. So she didn't get any financial gain out of this. So why do you think she would have done this? I mean, she obviously had some pathological issues. She obviously was very lonely to me. She wanted to feel connection somehow. Did she really need to go to all those lengths, though? Did she really need to fake being in 9-11? Could she have just been there and said, look, I'm willing to help you survivors and done the same things that she did, but without telling the lie. Right. Because there are in the survivors group there. Uh, and I actually, I'm if I'm remembering correctly, it was the friend who went to the lawyer's office with her. 
was not a 9-11 survivor, but she was a therapist. And so she was in the group in a more supportive role. And there are therapists in New York who've said they saw a lot of people trying to kind of have a piece of 9-11 or maybe validate their trauma a little and their fear, but they weren't really as deeply connected as they say. However, this isn't Tanya going to a therapist and lying. This is Tanya lying on a grand scale. And there are times where she dropped off, you know, and they people couldn't find her and couldn't talk to her, but she always came back and kept going with it. So it's like she had those moments where she could have recouped. Exactly. She could have always went back to Spain. She had moments where she could say, I'm in too deep. I'm getting out. But she just kept it going. Especially when the New York Times started contacting her. Why not just walk away at that point? Why still stick around and go see see a lawyer and... And believe that she could keep convincing people. Like that there was some way out that would let her keep all her friends. And that was just never going to happen. And that's what's frustrating because she was very convincing. She was obviously very motivated. And as I said, she probably could have done all the good she did without telling the lie. So do you think she did more good than bad? Look, it's a really hard question to answer because she did a lot of good. She gave a lot of rights to the survivors that they didn't have. But then yeah, she took advantage of some psychologically vulnerable people and that was all taken away from them through her lie. So I don't know. It's interesting to hear the survivors talk about missing her. Yes. Anyone who's had a relationship or a friendship that's gone south, sometimes you still miss the person and the relationship you had had before. And so they kind of miss her in the way they kind of miss their life before 9-11, before everything changed. And I think that's a valid feeling to miss the Tanya they thought they had. They miss a person that really never existed. I do wonder if she hadn't done these things, if someone else would have. Like, had she just never come in this group, someone else may have stepped up or maybe two people would have stepped up and been able to do what she did if she wasn't there doing it. I mean, the group still functions. Linda, her friend, has organized events that rival Tanya's. And without the added drama of everyone having to comfort and support Tanya through her meltdowns and tantrums surrounding the events. Because a lot of these things she planned, she took a lot of attention onto herself. She sucked a lot of support out of people in order to give them these things. It was almost like their price of admission. So did Jerry ever rejoin the group? From what I understand, he is working with a different group. He's like made amends with the people involved. But oh, what was his group? His group was had a similar but different focus. It wasn't on survivors. I almost want to say it's environmental. And now I'm going to look it up and have to edit out me saying something stupid. But I can't I can't remember. But he is he's still very much involved in the post 9-11 community, but in a different group. Okay, well, that's good. It's another thing a lot of people said is she would gossip and backbite people constantly and that would make everyone else, you know, they wouldn't want to be her target. They wanted to be her friend. You know, she gave a lot. She really did a a really good manipulation job on everyone. I do wonder if she's gotten help because if she did this as a child you know, and a teenager with all these fake boyfriends and this fake life, and then she did it on this grand scale. What is she doing right now? Is she honestly just living a normal life of a professional woman? 
Or does she have something else cooking? Maybe she learned her lesson? I don't think so, though. I don't think so. I think she would need, like, professional help. And maybe her mom got that for her? I hope so. I would hope so. I would hope for her benefit. She doesn't have to live with this stigma of what happened and everything forever. If she got help, that would be really fantastic. From what I can tell, the Survivors Network is going strong. They're doing bigger and better things all the time, and they're all still sticking together and helping each other. So I think they're good. I mean, this was hurtful and this was mean and all of that, but I think they're good. Now, if Tanya could get herself right, then, you know, maybe something good came from all of this. But man, what a story. It's, it was a, it's a good story in the worst way. Exactly. All right. So if you want to get in touch with us, we are on our website at insightpod.com. Facebook's Insight Pod and Instagram's at Insight Pod. Email and Twitter are both at InsightfulPod and emails at gmail.com. We have our Patreon and we have our bonus mini-sode up right now. And also, if you rate, review, subscribe, all of those things in whatever podcast app you use, all of that helps our podcast grow. Did I get it all in there? I think so. It's probably the first time. So yeah, <laughs> finally I got it all in there. So we will see you guys in one week. Bye.